So my sermon title is called Pick Up Your Cross and Follow Me. It's kind of an argument against passive Christianity and being comfortable. In Mark 8, 34 to 38, I'm going to read the scripture for us. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, let me pray for us. Yeah, Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for just giving me this opportunity to, um, to speak your word today, Lord. I pray that you give me the courage and boldness to speak your words, speak through me, Lord. And let me not use my own words, but let me use your words, Lord. I pray that we can apply this to our lives and uh, just that we can learn from this. I pray in all these things in your name. In Jesus' name, pray, amen. All right, so when you see that cross, what do you guys see? For me, I feel like following, following, um, Following someone has been really just messed up. The concept of following someone has been messed up by our social media, Facebook and Instagram. You know, when you follow somebody, all it takes is a click of a button, right? Say, oh, I'm following this person. Oh, this person looks cool. I'll press this button. I'll follow him. But following that person, it doesn't require anything from you. All it does is a click of a button. So... The concept of following somebody, I feel like, has been truly just been jacked up by our society today and uh, our social media. And when you, see, when you read this verse, you see how radical it is to actually follow Jesus. It says, deny yourself, and whoever desires to save his life will lose it. For Christians back in the first century, being a Christian was something radical. It's not like it is now where we're passive and uh, we have all this head knowledge, but we don't put anything into practice. So I want to show you guys, oh shoot, I want to show you guys what we can um, get from this story, but before I get into the main passage, I want to show what are some of the implications, what are some of the implications of following Jesus in the first century perspective. As we know, the first century was uh, the Roman oppression of uh, Israel, and the Romans were oppressing all these Christians. And a lot of times, following, following Jesus or being a Christian at that time, it meant jail. It meant being tortured. It meant being persecuted. It meant being put, in, put into bonds. And it's nothing like we have now where we have just such a comfortable Christianity. Our lives aren't, our lives aren't in danger by us following Christ. No, none of that. But the Christians in the first century, man, it was, it was life or death a lot of the times. Following Jesus meant that you're probably going to be persecuted, you're probably going to get tortured, and you might, you might very well die. And this is, um, this is a little passage about what being in prison is like at the time. And it says, in the prison, there's a place called the Tulanum, about 12 feet below the surface of the ground. It is enclosed on all sides by walls, and above it is a chamber with a vaulted roof of stone. Neglect, darkness, and stench made it a hideous and fearsome to behold. So the design of the prison would be one dome at the top, and there's a hole in the ground, which leads to a bigger dome in the bottom. 
And this was describing the, the dome on the bottom. And that's where the worst of the worst prisoners went. They sent them in there, they bonded them together, and a lot of times people will be, there's not enough room, so it will be literally packed, standing, stand, uh, person to person. And they, they had to peep and poo in there, and it was just a nasty, nasty place to be. And the prisoners there also, they, they were given food, but the food quality was not the best. And in this, in this uh, little passage, it says, he had no companion or servant with him, spoke to no one and saw no one, except when he was compelled to take food. And the food was of such quality and amount as neither to afford him any satisfaction, nor yet allow him to die. This was, in fact, the most poor, terrible part of his imprisonment. So the Romans, they fed you just enough to keep you alive, but not enough to nurture you. So they're just keeping you alive until, until you eventually die. So it was a horrible, horrible, horrible death and a horrible time. So why were these early Christians thrown in jail and executed? Well, it's because of a thing called the imperial cult. In the first century, the imperial cult was the worship of Caesar. And Caesar was seen as um, the son of God. Caesar was everything that they say about Jesus. That's, how, that's what Caesar was supposed to be. And this little passage as well shows just how similar the language of Jesus and Caesar really is. Since providence, who has divinely ordered our existence, has applied her energy and zeal, and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of mankind, bestowing upon him us and our descendants as a savior, he who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar Augustus, who by this epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good news, good tidings, and since the birthday of the God, first brought to the world the good news resting in him. So they equate Caesar to the good news, just like they equate Jesus to the good news. So Jesus is sovereign overall. This was a big problem for the, the Romans because the Romans viewed Caesar as sovereign overall. So when you proclaim Jesus so, sovereign overall, this was in direct conflict with Caesar, and Rome didn't like that. Rome didn't want you guys to cause trouble. They just want you to pay taxes and shut up. It's the truth. So let me get to the point of this, uh, this passage that um, I'm preaching on. Point number one is you let Jesus lead. We go to the verses, and then we'll, uh, the verse says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And the New King James Version underneath says, when he called the people to himself, the disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I highlighted the part that was the most important in yellow, which is follow me. Jesus saying, let me, let me lead you, follow me, because I am the truth and the way and the life. When you, when you, when you decide to, to follow Jesus, you let him lead, and it's not about you saying, Jesus, I will lead, you be a part of my life. No, it's saying, Jesus, you'll be at the head of my life, and I'll follow you, and you lead me in all things that I do. John 10, 3 through 4 says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. Honestly, my favorite part of this passage, it says, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So he knows every single one of us by name. And guys, it's not that we chose to love, love God first. 
is God chose to love us first. And that's a huge, huge difference. And yeah, it says, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And when you guys have seen Jesus and know the goodness of his voice, you'll follow him regardless. And Mark 8, okay, let me, yeah, Mark 8, 33, before I get into this verse, what happened before this part, um, what happened before this passage, Peter had just uh, been really wise and proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah earlier in the chapter. But going down later into the chapter, Peter, um, again, becomes kind of foolish. And then he's, when Jesus um, predicts his death, he takes Jesus' side and he starts rebuking him and says, no, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. And Mark 8.33 says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So when I first first read this passage, I was like, whoa, dude, did Peter get all of a sudden manifestation of Satan in him? But that's not the case. That's not the case. Peter was not manifested with Satan. If you look at the Greek, the word Satan is satanos. And satanos means adversary. So if you replace Satan with adversary, it says, get behind me, adversary. He says, you do not have the mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What Peter was thinking, he was thinking that Jesus was supposed to be the conqueror Messiah, the one that was supposed to topple the Roman government, supposed to bring peace, and he's supposed to be this great military commander, I mean, like an empire toppler, but he's saying, Peter, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. I didn't come here to conquer. I came here to serve. I came here not for the concerns of man, but for the concerns of God. God wants me to come here to be a server a Messiah who dies in service, not a Messiah who comes and conquers. And he says, Peter, get behind me, and I'll show you what this is all about. Let me lead you. Let me lead you, and I'll show you what the Messiah is truly supposed to be like. And let me, guys, give you a story on what it's like to be led by, um, led by God, led by Jesus. So there's these two cave, uh, cave explorers. We'll call one of them um, Joe. We'll call that one Danny. And Danny and Joe, really good friends. Joe's a really experienced uh, cave explorer, and he tells Danny, yo, there's this really cool cave. Let's go explore it. And he says, but before you get to this cave, let me tell you, to get inside all the way to where you want to go, it's going to get really tough. It's going to get tight, and it's going to be a little dangerous. But if you listen to me, you will get through this. So Danny and Joe start going through this, through this cave system, and it starts to get tighter and tighter, and they're starting to have to squeeze through. And they get to this one point where it's so tight that it's squeezing his chest. And Joe tells him, the, only, the, way, you can get out through, uh, the way you get out from this is you inhale, you take a breath in, and you push yourself up. So as he was doing this, he felt that, it was a lot harder than uh, Joe was uh, saying it to be. And then all of a sudden, he started to get this little tiny voice in his head. Oh, dude, Danny, you're going to die here. You're going to die in this cave. And he started panicking, started panicking. And this voice just started going in his head, and it just started to dominate his thought. And he yelled out loud, and he said, we're going to die here. We're going to die here. And Joe said, no, Danny, you got to listen to me right now, man. You need to listen to me. Don't listen to that voice. Listen to me. I've been through this before. And if you listen to me, we will get through this. Well, 
Unfortunately, Danny died in that cave. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, he listened to Joe. He listened to Joe, and uh, they got through it. They got, to the, they got to the place where they wanted to get. They got and they saw this cave, and it was just the most beautiful cave that he'd ever seen. And that's how following Jesus is like. You follow Jesus, and he leads you through these tough, hard places. And if you keep, keep steadfast in his leadership and you follow him, you'll get to this beautiful place that he's talking about. Let me tell you this. Just because you let Jesus lead you doesn't mean you're not going to suffer anymore. Everybody suffers. But the thing is, Jesus gives you meaning for your suffering. And that's a huge, huge, I think that's a huge revelation for me. So point number two is you pick up your cross, which is an action, which means works in the name of Jesus. You know, like a lot of us will be thinking, works? Isn't it, isn't it faith? Isn't, don't we get, aren't, don't, aren't we justified by faith and not works? Well, yeah, but I think a lot of us are mis, uh, misinterpreting what Paul is saying. When, when Paul is saying works, he's talking about circumcision and um, eating those meats, eating, a, I mean, having a special dietary restriction. Those type of works, those are like boundary spiritual markers. Those are just things that you do to set you, to set you apart. But they don't, they don't mean anything. They don't increase your faith. That doesn't show that you love God more. It's not anything. It's just a little thing that you do to set yourself apart. And he, Paul's saying those type of things, they don't bring salvation. But faith in Jesus brings salvation. And James, James kind of uh, ties together the theme of works and faith. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So don't put your faith into practice. If you just have the faith in your words, you're just, you're just hearers only, and you're deceiving yourselves. Verse number two is, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So basically, what he's saying is, you need to put your faith into practice. Once you have your faith in your head, should transform your mind, and it should be, you should start to have a praxis to it, which is practice. You need to practice your faith out. Living your faith out, loving others, especially the fortunate, less fortunate, I think that's what Paul is saying. For Titus, this is what Paul is saying. For, all, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So right at the bottom, Paul is saying zealous for good works. Once you have this faith, and once you have this faith, faith of Jesus, this faith needs to be put into practice, and you need to start living this, uh, this faith out. And as I've been going to, uh, going to school, and especially this semester, um, especially, I've been reading about black liberation theology, um, Latino American liberation theology, and just this, all sorts of different liberation theologies, and it makes it abundantly clear if we are servants of Jesus, if we let Jesus lead our lives, and if we say we love Jesus, then we need to love the oppressed, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Like, man, God is telling me 
Like, usually you don't, you don't do much of that at all. And I was like, yeah, you're right, God. You're right. God was just really putting this to my heart, guys. How can we say that we love Jesus, but we see a homeless man on the corner of the street and we just drive by and not even, not even put a second thought to it? That, that doesn't make sense to me. And it's becoming more clear to me. And I just feel like we need to do better, guys. We need to do better. We need to, we need to start caring for the orphans. We need to start caring for the poor, the widows, the homeless. And this quote by James Cohn, uh, yeah, James Cohn, who's a black liberation theologist, he was equating, he was saying that Jesus is the God of the oppressed, God of the poor. Jesus came to be with the poor. He didn't come to be with the rich and, and the privileged. No, he came to be with the poor, the dreads of society, the lowest of the low of society. And he came to bring, to free them of this oppression that they're having. He came to free them. He came to bring fullness of life to them, to show that, no, this oppression is not what life is all about, but freedom in Jesus is what it's all about. And this quote that I have is from this book. It says, There can be no freedom for God unless the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, and the justice is given for the poor. So God is not going to be satisfied, guys, until we start caring for the poor, the widows, the orphans. Yeah, man, we got to do better. I got to do better. We got to do better. And we as a church, as a community of faith as Christians, we got to do better. Because like I, like I just mentioned, man, it doesn't make sense for us to not care about the poor. We can't, we can't possibly call ourselves Christians when we show such, when we, we basically don't care for the poor. We, we in this life of privilege, we have the choice. We have the choice to help the poor, the oppressed, they don't, they don't have a choice, but we as the privileged, we have the choice to bring change for those people. And dude, we have to. We have to step up. We gotta, we gotta show the love for the oppressed, the poor, the orphans, and the widows. We gotta start having this um, heart of servitude like Jesus did. Like Jesus said, like, like I was talking about in the first point, Jesus came to serve, not to conquer. And we also, need, we also should come to serve the poor, the oppressed, just to have this servant heart in our hearts. And this, I have a story that goes along with this. And it's a story of a, of a young lady. And she has this job as a custodian at, at her church. And it goes, with Christmas, just days away, I should have been excited, but I wasn't. The part-time job I had during my senior year kept me in a miserable mood much of the time. I was a custodian for my church. I disliked getting up on Saturday mornings while my friends slept in. I despised the ugly drab gray shirt that had my name stitched upon above my one pocket. Most of all, I hated the work. It was dirty and messy, and it seemed like people were always calling me to do things they didn't want to do. Gwen, sweep up this mess. Gwen, put this away. What made things even worse on this particular Saturday was that I had to clean a room where a bunch of little kids had spent the night. The church had an all-night party for several children of needy families in our community. They'd left about an hour ago, leaving one big mess for me to clean up. As I swept and scrubbed, I felt a cold draft coming from the hallway. I put down my cleaning materials and followed the chilly, chilly breeze to one of the outside doors. A window had been broken, and shards of glass were scattered across the linoleum floor. 
As I sighed, as I sighed over yet another job to do, the adult in charge of the overnight party walked up. He looked at me, sorry, shook his head and said, one of the children did it. He broke it so he could unlock the door. I'm really sorry. The sound of his voice faded as, as I thought, I can't believe some kid broke the window. How irresponsible, how disrespectful of the church's property. With anger mounting inside, I found a cardboard box and began picking up the shard jagged pieces. That's when I first spotted a small grubby hand reaching across, reaching through the broken window. I looked more closely and saw the head and shoulders of a chubby-faced boy, about eight or nine years old. His expression was mean and defiant. Hey, I yelled, get in here. For some reason, in spite of his defiant look, he obeyed. Did you break this window? I don't even have to ask, do I? What made you do such a stupid thing? My mom was supposed to come and get me, he answered, but she never came, and I wanted back in. Did anyone ever teach you that you shouldn't break a window when you want inside? You knock until someone comes. I knocked, but no one came, he replied. It was cold outside. That's no excuse. Breaking a window is wrong. Finishing my lecture, I grabbed the cardboard box, turned and walked out of the room, leaving the boy standing by himself. As I stomped back towards the janitor's closet, I began thinking over what had just happened. I thought about the little boy with the defiant face. I thought about the bitter wind that whipped through the broken window. I thought about the thin jacket the boy wore. I thought about how desperate he must have been to get out of the cold, desperate enough to risk cutting himself to the broken window, on the broken window. And I thought about the needy, impoverished families who had sent their children to, do overnight pro to the overnight program. I put down the box and walked quickly to the door with a broken window. The boy was gone. I never saw him again. It's been quite a while since I left that little boy standing in the hallway. Since then, I've grown a lot in my faith, and I've found ways to serve and care for others, like doing volunteer work at a shelter for battered women, helping others in need has become very important to me. I can't say that my experience with that little boy is the only reason I want to show God's love to others, but I do know the experience has taught me a lasting lesson. Until then, I spent a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. I felt everybody was always bossing me around. I thought I had no power at all, but I had a lot of power. I had the power to make that little boy feel welcome, to make him feel unwelcome, or to make him feel unwelcome. unwelcome. I had the power to show Christ's love or reject the child. At Christmas time, the okay, I'm just going to leave it at that. Guys, so this lady had the power. She had the power to do change, and she realized she had this power. It says she, in the story, I had the power to make a little boy feel unwelcome or make him feel or make him feel welcome. I had the power to show Christ's love or reject a child. So my friends, us in this position of power, this position of privilege, we have the power. We have the power to bring change for the oppressed, the poor, and the needy. And we have the power to show Christ's love to them. So let's not reject them, because they're all children of God, and they all, all need love and Jesus' redemption. Point number three, don't be ashamed of the cross. If you go down the, the, the passage that I was reading, it says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Like I feel like in today's society a lot of times, it seems like Christianity is becoming the minority it used to be the majority, and whereas before, you, 
we could have like prayer meetings outside, have a Bible club at a public school, saying um, saying under God at the uh, for the pledge of pledge of allegiance. Now these days, Bible club is uh, frowned upon. Praying out in the public is uh, embarrassing to us for some of us, and those type of things we can feel embarrassed about being Christian because this world is so is making the Christianity the minority. And even, in, even as a minority, you got to remember the Christians in the first century Rome time, they were also the mi- minorities. And Jesus was telling them, he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So even at that time, he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. And as we are in this new, I mean, in our current current time where you know, Bible study, Bible club is, uh, is sort of embarrassing. And even uh, praying out in the public, a lot of times maybe, uh, you know, we'll pray at home. We'll pray at home before dinner. But when we go out and eat, we'll just eat because uh, we, sometimes we don't want to pray. Pray in the, pray in the, the restaurant because we feel kind of embarrassed. And that's the truth. I'm not, afraid to, I'm not afraid to tell you, yeah, sometimes, you know, I won't pray because maybe I don't want to be judged, or maybe I do feel a little embarrassed. And Jesus is saying, no, don't be ashamed of me, man. I've given you this great gift. I've given you liberation. I've given you salvation. Don't be ashamed of me. And Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, the salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stands and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." So sometimes, as we are embarrassed as Christians, sometimes we try to conform to the world and um, make our Christianity less apparent, right? But this is saying, no, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be the salt of the, world, salt of the earth. You're supposed to be the light of the world. And when you're the salt of the earth, he uses this comparison to show that salt, if salt loses its saltiness, if, if we as Christians start conforming to the world, and we lose, we lose our distinctiveness. And God is saying, you're not good for anything then, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And we as the light, we're supposed to illuminate the darkness. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be this light. So we can't, we can't be embarrassed to be Christians. We need to be proud. We need to be different. We need to be the salt that gives its flavor. We need to be the light that illuminates the darkness. And let me tell you guys why. Let me tell you some, something shocking to all of you guys. Maybe you guys knew this, maybe you didn't. But all of you guys sitting here as followers of Jesus Christ, you guys are all holy priests. If we believe as Christians that we have been draft, grafted in as the chosen people along with the Israelites, then we should also take the mantle that, Jesus, that God gave the Israelites says, Exodus 19.6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the Israelites. So, dude, <laughs> it blows my mind. We're all holy priests. 
We're all holy priests, and we need to act like holy priests. What it means to be holy, it means to be set apart. And God sets us apart to be holy priests, to be different, to be the salt, to be the light of the world. And so let me close by saying this. Let's not be, let's not be comfortable Christians. Let's not be passive Christians. Let's let Jesus lead. Let's live our lives. Let's put our faith into practice. Let's be the salt and let's be the light. And let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me close this in prayer. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for just giving me this opportunity to speak your word today, Lord. I pray that we're able to, you know, just take what we learned today, apply it to our lives, Lord. Let us be bold Christians. Let us not be passive Christians, but let us be Christians like those of the, of the first century. Radical Christians, radical people. I pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.